All right. Well, last week was the conclusion of our Ask Anything series, so thanks so much for the questions that you asked and how you engaged in that. We didn't get to all of the questions, so some of the questions get pushed into the next time that we will do that type of a series. But we decided to cut that series short by a few weeks because we wanted to spend a number of weeks honing in on one of our core values and provide an added emphasis on this core value. So we've got three core values here at Center Church, gospel, community, and mission. Pertaining to the gospel, we try to relentlessly preach in a gospel-centered way. We try to orient everything that we do here at Center Church around the gospel and have things flow out of that. Um, And then out of that, we are convinced that that gospel belief will create community. If we are believing the gospel, it's going to result in us pursuing community with one another. And, and I'm not suggesting we're far from, or that we are perfect or even close to it regarding the gospel or community. Uh, but we have seen some positive things like community. We, at least end of last year, we had 100% involvement in our community groups which is unheard of in a church context. Most churches try to get like 40%. And so, um, so that, that's a great reality for us. So the fact that we're not talking about gospel or community the next three weeks does not mean that we've checked those boxes by any stretch. But we are going to focus in on this idea that believing in Jesus compels mission. So this is the core value that we see more as an aspiring core value. Meaning, we'd love to hear more stories of people visiting Center Church because so-and-so invited me to the church. Or hear more uh, uh, examples of folks asking for prayer for a certain individual in their life that they're sharing Jesus with, that they're having gospel conversations with. Now, we do hear some examples of these things uh, in other instances, but we'd love for them to become more of a norm for us, just part of who we are, part of our language and, uh, and how we relate with one another, the stories that we tell each other. So for the next three weeks, we're going to spend some time wrestling with this idea of mission. We're going to do three topical sermons, and our topic today is the right and wrong reasons for living a life of mission. So for the three weeks, today what we're wanting to do is to just kind of lay a bit of a baseline, a foundation. So before we jump into this topic, I want to ensure we're all clear on what is meant by mission, because this at times can be maybe a churchy word, and people might wonder, what exactly are we talking about? So mission, just in our current everyday language, deals with purpose. So someone might say, I'm on a mission. You probably have said this, right? Like, I'm on a mission to do this thing. And what this means is that someone has a clear goal in mind. They have clarity in what they're trying to accomplish. They have a purpose. Similarly, Christians are called to live with a distinct purpose as well. A Christian might say, or maybe we could say, should say, even on a daily basis, I'm on a mission for Jesus, or I'm on a mission with Jesus, or Maybe more appropriately, I'm on Jesus' mission. So think about this for a minute. Do you think about this when you wake up? 
Do you think about this throughout your day? The fact that we are called to live on mission with Jesus. That is, that's the highest calling. That's priority number one. Living on mission with Jesus. As Christians, our purpose each day is to make Jesus seen and known through our lives. It's not just to get through the day. It's not just to get everyone where they need to go. It's to make Jesus seen and known through our lives. And to not live this way, listen to this, to not live that way is to not live as a Christian. Because then we're just having our own priorities. And if we live according to our personal priorities, we're not living according to Jesus' priorities. And that means we're not living as a Christian lives. So in summary, mission is embodying and speaking the good news of Jesus. Mission is sharing how Jesus is meaningful to you and has changed you. So when you think mission, don't think like, I've got to have 12 steps, I've got to have this really intricate gospel presentation, I've got to be ready to share with people. Living on mission is sharing with others how Jesus has changed you, how Jesus is meaningful to you, how Jesus makes life meaningful in the here and now. When we say the gospel compels mission, the whole purpose of what we're doing in our lives then is to lead people back to what's driving the mission, which is the gospel. So we've got to get back to that. And, and so, if that's our purpose then, there's going to be right and wrong motivations for living a life that is purposeful for Jesus. And that's why we're talking about this topic today. So let's start this morning to, by addressing some wrong reasons for sharing Jesus with others, living on mission, and, and why. Not just sharing what's wrong, but why it's wrong as well. So, first of all, the most pervasive, guilt. M maybe we struggle with a certain sin in our lives. Or maybe we have a haunting sense that God is disappointed with us. And so if we think, if I tell someone about Jesus, maybe that will offset my sin. Maybe that will appease God because I'm kind of doing this thing that's at the top of the food chain in terms of living on mission. I'm actually telling someone. I'm doing the thing that I'm most scared of. Guilt can be really effective at changing our behavior for either a couple hours or a couple days. But its, it's capacity to inspire us to keep living for Jesus, to keep living on mission for Jesus, to keep telling others about Jesus is non-existent. It can't do it. Guilt will not motivate us in any meaningful way. In fact, telling someone about Jesus as a means of running away from our guilt is going to end bad, really bad for us and for the people we're interacting with. Guilt-driven mission is unhelpful, and there's a couple of reasons I want to highlight this. First of all, it portrays an incorrect view of God. So, so what happens 
when we're functioning out of guilt is that we're ultimately going to reveal God to be like an impatient parent. You know, like when, if you're a parent, right, and you're watching TV and you're really locked in to some show and your kids just want to show you something. Or if you're, if you're reading a book and someone's pestering you, they want you to see this thing or hear this thing. And the parent, the person, is just like half-hearted, gives you one ear, not both, half of their attention, and just wants you to be done with that thing so that we can focus in on what we're really caring about. Psalm 86, 15 talks about God this way. But you, O Lord are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. There is so much packed in that verse. God is merciful. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. He is faithful. All of those things are things that we yearn for. That's who we want God to be. That's why we're drawn to God, because He's those things. Now, God hates sin, right? For sure He hates sin, and we shouldn't minimize this because His hatred of sin is so deep that He died to defeat it. And though God has every right to be an annoyed parent because we're the ones who sinned against him, he's not. That's not who he is. He is merciful and gracious. He's patient. He's bearing with us. He's loving us when we don't love him. This is who God is. Every single day, you and I are doing things that should cause God to erupt in anger, to kill us on the spot because of our sin. But he doesn't. That's not who he is. A point will come, for sure. But today, you're here. You're breathing. He's showing you patience. He's showing you love. And this is what Psalm 86.15 conveys. Also, this incorrect view of God, it, it's going to lead us to live lives that lack distinctiveness and that lack joy. So if we depict God as kind of this impatient parent or we're functioning out of guilt, it's going to lead us to reveal Jesus as a moral teacher who gives us some rules to follow, right? So what are the rules? Give me the list of rules, okay? If I can follow those rules, then we'll be content. God will be happy. Everything will be okay. But the problem with this is that it's another form of self-salvation. You and I are going to break the rules. The person we're trying to share Jesus with is going to break the rules, it becomes about us and what we do. This is what every other religion says. This is what makes Christianity distinct. Every other religion says, do something to appease the deity. 
Be good, work hard, be disciplined, achieve something, prove yourself worthwhile and valuable in the eyes of this deity. That's not Christianity. There is no joy in impossibilities. Living a life of mission driven by guilt will be unhelpful and it will be miserable. All right, second reason. To try and look good or to impress others, the desire to be maybe like a superstar Christian. Maybe you're a type A personality or, or maybe you're just trying to fulfill dreams that you feel like your parent has for you or had for you. Someone might believe this will actually make them happy if they can get more evangelism notches on their bedpost than the next person, than the next Christian. What this does is it makes Christianity about us. And that's not Christianity at all. Christianity is about what Jesus has done. Christianity is about making much of Jesus, not making much of us. The reason why this is wrong is because it's merely the formulation of another law. What does it mean for me to look good? Okay, these are the things that I need to do. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says he came and he fulfilled the law. The law is done away with. There's no law that we need to create to try and impress God, to make ourselves good. Jesus did what we can't do. Sharing Jesus as a way to one-up other Christians will devolve into a futile exercise. It will also make us prideful. If we approach the church gathering this way, like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to one-up this person. I'm going to outwork, outdo this person next to me. It leads to pride, and that will cut off relationships. Also, this paradigm flies in the face of the gospel premise that the gospel advances through our weakness. Many of us don't like to think about this. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, But he said to me, Paul speaking about Jesus, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. We want to function out of our strengths. We want people to see us doing impressive things. Because that's how... That's kind of the economy in which we live, the culture in which we live. Be impressive, and then people will think highly of us. But Jesus says, I'm going to take the weak things, the small things, the broken things in your life, and I'm going to use those to make much of me. And so as Christians, we've got to become okay with being weak and broken with things not looking maybe the way that we would prefer for them to look, with not looking good or impressive to others. A couple of other quick reasons that I would say are wrong. First of all, this idea of fire insurance or the idea of putting God in debt to us. The idea is so that when the day comes when we need a bailout, when we need help, when we encounter something that's beyond us, we can't control it, that then we can come to God and say, remember that time I led so-and-so to Jesus? But then Jesus is going to confront us. I save, not you. you. You didn't 
save. You merely shared the message of me with someone else. Or some people, maybe they would like to share Jesus with others because they like to talk, because they're extroverted. This is fun. I get to tell stories about myself. I get to show people maybe how smart I am. The call of a life of mission is one where we're going to need to listen well, ask thoughtful questions, listen well, and then speak when we have the opportunity. But as we see in the gospel how Jesus is pursuing us, we also will be called to pursue others. When we make it about us being extroverted, us talking a lot, we're essentially asking people to pursue us. Serve me in a way that's meaningful to me. These are all wrong reasons to live on mission. So let's take some time here to think about right reasons for living a life of mission. First of all, the gospel is intended to advance. None of us should be able to read the New Testament and, and conclude that the gospel just stops with us. That it stops being transmitted. We are intended to be conduits. The gospel comes to us and then it goes through us as well. I'm not going to spend much time on this today because we're going to hone on this more next week, but, but this is a true biblical right motivation to live on mission. To understand that the gospel is intended to advance, to overwhelm others with its goodness. Secondly, in life we are all pursuing joy. All of us. We order our lives around what we think will make us happy, what will induce joy for us. This is why many of you start your day with coffee, right? Like you want to grind those coffee beans and you want to smell that smell, that aroma, right? You enjoy that. That's why you do that. This, this is why people exercise. Maybe not because of the immediate joy, but because there's a joy that comes from that. They like how they feel. They like the strength that it offers them. They like the fact that they can keep up with their kids. This is why we engage in hobbies. This is why people get married or don't get married. This is why people have kids or don't have kids. This is why people pay taxes or don't pay taxes. I want to contend that the speaking of good news to Je- uh, or of Jesus to other people offers us an incomparable joy. It offers us an incomparable joy. In Acts 5, we read of followers of Jesus. It says they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. These individuals had encountered Jesus in such a way that they did not want to stop talking about Jesus. But the context of what's going on here is all the more amazing. See, this is right after these individuals were imprisoned for talking about Jesus. Right after they were beaten for talking about Jesus. And yet, they wanted to continue to speak about him. 
their encounter with Jesus, how Jesus had overwhelmed them, had changed their lives, filled them with a joy that could not be squelched by imprisonment or by being beaten. It even moved them to rejoice for being worthy to suffer for Jesus. This is something that's maybe just beyond our comprehension. A joy that is so enduring that people will gladly suffer for it. Jesus desires your joy. Do you believe that? That Jesus wants you to be a happy person. He longs for that for you. When I think about talking about Jesus to others, this has been my experience personally. There's nothing like speaking about how amazing Jesus' grace is. I don't always know what I'm going to say. I don't always know where the conversation is going to go. But it is hard to to kind of describe the excitement in this process. Recently, someone from Center Church was sharing with me how they'd shared Jesus with a friend. And they'd never been explicit, at least this explicit, about talking about Jesus with someone. And so they'd shared Jesus. It was basically Jesus for 40 minutes. And, And what they said to me was, I didn't know what I should always be saying but it was an exhilarating conversation. This is the word that sticks out to me. Exhilarating. It's hard to even say why, but sharing Jesus, sharing grace with other people is exhilarating. You can't talk about something else that will exhilarate you in the same way. I mean, you might say right now, no, that just terrifies me. That doesn't exhilarate me. But this is God's intention for you, that you would be exhilarated sharing this news with others. And so it's right for you to pursue your joy by speaking of Jesus with others. Third, it is right to regularly tell others about how Jesus has changed you and how he is meaningful to you because we are prone to forget We are prone to forget all that Jesus has done, all that he is doing for us even now. We forget these realities. This is why it's important for us to gather together as a church, to hear these reminders. But when we forget, the next step for us is we'll begin taking credit for things that we did not do and things that we cannot do on our own. We need to regularly rehearse the gospel to remind ourselves of the kindness of Jesus and of the great power of the gospel. We need these reminders. Fourth, seeing people in need all around us should grip our hearts. There are realities in this world that are horrific. We live in such a privileged reality that we can think it's unjust that we don't like the taste of food at a meal. A child can think a skinned knee is a terrible life event. I'm not saying it's fun. 
It's no fun, but it's not a terminal illness. It's not like living in a war zone. It's not like what we've seen this past week in Afghanistan. It's not, I'm passing my baby to the front of a line, willing to separate myself from my baby so they can escape torture and death. That's a different reality. Cutting myself off from my kids because I don't want them to have to go through what I know is coming. And this is true in a world that's filled with God's grace. This world is filled with grace. Think about reality where there is no grace. That's where we're headed. Either all grace or no grace. Separation from God is the only eternal truth in hell. When I think about this for my kids, it takes my breath away. I don't want this for my neighbors. I can honestly say I don't want this for my enemies. I think we oftentimes just gloss over the horrors of hell. Without Jesus, people are hosed. They are going to suffer endlessly. People need Jesus. There was a day when you and I did not love Jesus. But Jesus loved us. Not when we loved him to an adequate amount. He loved us. Period. We don't wait to become friends with people when they trust in Jesus. After they trust in Jesus. We're called to love them into loving Jesus. Love and compassion are right reasons to live a life of mission. And and this ties in with our fifth and final reason. This is the best news in the world. The gospel is. It is natural for us to share good news. Natural. It's, It's the most natural thing for us to talk to other people about good things. When you have gotten a new pet, what did you do? You probably went on social media at some point and told people about it. When a child has been born in your house, when you've purchased a new house, or you've gotten a new job, when you have won a race at recess, or you wanted to show your parents how you can do a flip in the pool, or something else impressive as a kid. What we do is we tell someone. We've all done it. We do it all the time. The fact that an all-powerful God would send his sinless son 
to come into this horrific reality and take our sin upon himself so that we could know joy, we could know freedom that flows from his salvation is the best news in the world. There's no message that comes close in terms of its power or the scope of its reach. Jesus' salvation impacts every single aspect of our lives. Ephesians 2, 8 and 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in those good works he prepared for us. How have we been saved? By grace. Not by going to church. Not by reading our Bible. Not by paying our taxes. Not by being really good at whatever you're really good at. We are saved by grace. And what do we do? We believe in that grace. We receive it, and we believe in it. We're saved by grace through faith. There's no yoke. There's no law. Saved by grace through faith. This is the best news in the world. One perfect God-man died for those who hated him so they could truly live. One reason I know this is the best news in the world is because it speaks to every problem I encounter. When I am angry, the gospel preaches to me. When I am hurt, when I am sad, the gospel preaches to me. When I don't know what to do, the gospel preaches to me. But more than this, more than speaking to every problem, it resolves my greatest problem and yours as well. Your favorite TV show, your favorite YouTube channel, they can't resolve your problems. In fact, it might create more problems because your parents might not let you watch what you want to watch, or your child might not allow you to watch what you would really like to watch. Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross says, I love you with an everlasting love. Your sins, which have separated you from me, are forgiven. They're wiped clean. They're done away with. My peace, my joy, my freedom are yours. Here's my concern. Please listen closely to this. My concern is that the reason we hesitate to share Jesus with our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers is because the gospel isn't the best news in the world to us. And I think we all have got to wrestle with this. If we've got a hitch in sharing Jesus, a hesitation, a qualm, a fear, anxiety, a resistance and unwillingness to share Jesus, we've got to ask this question. 
is this news that we profess is the best news in the world? Is it actually? Now, I, I think if I asked you, you'd say yes. Intellectually, yes, you'll say that. But functionally, practically, the way that you live your life, the way in which you spend your money, what fills your calendar, the relationships that you have, the conversations that you have with people, the way that we maybe don't pray for our neighbors or we don't intentionally invite others into our yards or our homes and show them generosity. I'm concerned that for all of our talk about gospel-centeredness, that maybe it's just a bunch of hot air. And, and so, I've already preached about guilt, right? I am not chasing guilt by saying this. If there's conviction that needs to happen, I want to facilitate that. I am not throwing guilt on you. I am trying to create space for Jesus, through his Spirit, to work in our hearts. Why don't we share the best news in the world? I saw this tweet this past week. A church can unsay by its culture what it says in its doctrine and not even realize it. Our doctrinal statement at Center Church says we value mission. But are our lives showing this? Are our lives demonstrating this? We want our walk to be in line with our talk. If we say we value it, then we want to value it. And if you're not there, then we want to we take the next step. You don't, you don't need to feel like you need to go stand on a corner, on a soapbox. I'm not asking you, to, and I never will ask you to do that. But I am asking you to take the next step. How is Jesus pushing on you? How is he prompting you? How is he nudging you? How is he convicting you. If you find yourself wondering whether you actually believe the gospel is the best news in the world because you don't remember the last time you talked with someone about Jesus, I want to end with this. The answer is not to go talk to someone about Jesus. We want to get to that point, okay? But we want you to do that. I want you to do that because you can't help but share the goodness that you found in Jesus. I want you to be overwhelmed. I want you to be convinced of the goodness of grace. Jesus loves you in your fear, in your guilt, in your pride, in your indifference towards him. He loves you in the midst of that. His love is so unthinkable, unthinkably good so undeserved, and his intention is to love you out of your anxiety, out of your malaise towards him, out of your self-righteousness. When you feel alone, unseen, when your friends or your spouse doesn't love you in the way you desire, when your kids take you for granted, there is one who is patiently and faithfully knocking at the door of your heart.
Jesus loves you even when you don't see him. Even when you don't love him. Even when you take him for granted. He loves you. You need to see Jesus for who he is. He is better than anything else you'll see or you'll encounter today. And when you find yourself looking forward to, whatever it might be, looking towards that thing, that event, that circumstance, that meal, whatever it might be, there should be a, a hesitation. How does Jesus factor into this? How does Jesus shape this, guide me in this? So we don't need to focus on what we need to do for Jesus. We need to see what he's done for us. And this is what he's done. This is who he is. He is merciful and he is gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness.